Welcome, I am your host, and this is the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of my new podcast, Unanswered Questions, where every week we will endeavour to discuss a mysterious unsolved case that has many lingering unanswered questions. So I hope you enjoy, and as always, leave me some feedback on what you think about the show, and rate it as well. Now on to the show. This week we'll be talking about the Flan Isles Lighthouse Disappearance. So, Flan Isles Lighthouse is a lighthouse near the highest point on Island Moor, one of the Flan Isles in the Outer Hebrides off the west coast of mainland Scotland. It is best known for the mysterious disappearance appearance of its keepers in 1900. Now we're going to get into a bit of a history of the lighthouse. So, the 23 metre 75 foot lighthouse was designed by David Allen Stevenson for the Northern Lighthouse Board or NLB. The NLB was formed by an Act of Parliament in 1786 as the Commissioners of Northern Lighthouses, largely at the urging of the lawyer and politician George Dempster, or Honest George as he was known, to oversee the construction and operation of four Scottish lighthouses, those being Kinard Head, North Ronald Sea, Scalpe and Mull of Kintyre, for which they were empowered to borrow up to £1,200. Until then, the only major lighthouse in Scotland was the Coal Brazier mounted on the Isle of May in the Firth of Forth, together with some smaller lights in the Firths of the Tay and Clyde. None of the major passages around Scotland, which led through dangerous narrows, were marked. The commissioners, who, whose first president was the Lord Provost of Edinburgh, Sir James Hunter Blair, advertised for building estimates, but there were no takers. They received an offer of help from Ezekiel Walker of King's Lynn, who had developed a parabolic reflector for the Huntington Lighthouse, and St Thomas Smith, who was making his name in street lighting in Edinburgh, and had offered help to return to England to learn from him. Smith soon returned and instructed an Edinburgh architect to prepare the plans for four lighthouses. The £1,200 was spent before the first lighthouse at Kinard Head was finished, and a further act of Parliament was required which allowed them to receive half their dues before all the lights were finished. By the end of 1787, the first light had been installed. At the Mall of Kintyre, everything had to be transported by pack horses from Campbelltown. Twelve miles away, but it was lit by October 1788. To get to Scalpe in the Outer Hebrides and North Ronald Sea in the Orkney, Isles needed boat trips across rough waters for, for Smith and Mills, the stonemason, but all the same, the job was completed by October 1789 to widespread praise. The Jews, which had originally been sent at two shillings per tonne of cargo in the 17th century, were now reduced to one penny per tonne. The Commissioner's most famous engineer was Robert Stevenson, whose son David, Allen and Thomas followed their father into the profession. The Stevenson dynasty bought the majority of the Northern Lighthouses in some exceptionally challenging locations. Their lights were some of the engineering masterpieces of their time, notably those at Bell Rock, Skurvivor and Muckleflugger. Between 1876 and 2005, the NLB also maintained foghorns at a number of locations. The last at Scurvivore was sounded for the last time on the 4th of October 2005. Construction between 1895 and 1899 was undertaken by George Laverson of Rutherglen at a cost of £1,899, inclusive of the building, landing places, stairs and railway tracks. All the materials used had to be hauled up the 45 metre, 148 foot cliffs directly from supply boats. A further £3,526 was spent on the store location at Breeskelet on the Isle of Lewis. The lighthouse was first lit on the 7th of December, 1899. 
The purpose of the railway tracks was to facilitate the transport of provisions for the keepers and fuel for the light, paraffin at that date, the light consumed 20 barrels a year, up the steep gradients from the landing places by means of a cable hauled railway. This was powered by a small steam engine and a shed adjoining the lighthouse. A track descended from the lighthouse in a westerly direction and then curved around to the south. In the approximate centre of the island it forked by means of a set of hand operated points humorously dubbed Clapham Junction. In reference to a railway junction in London, one branch continued in its curvature to head eastward to the east landing place on the southeast corner of the island, thus forming a half circle, while the other, slightly shorter, branch curved back to the west to serve the west landing, situated in a small inlet on the island's south coast. The final approaches to the landing stages were extremely steep. The cable was guided around the curves by pulleys set between the rails and a line of posts set outside the inner rail prevented it from going too far astray should it jump off the pulleys. The cargo was carried in a small four-wheeled bogey. In 1925, the lighthouse became one of the first Scottish lights to receive communications from the shore by wireless telegraphy. In the 1960s, the island's transport system was modernised. The railway was removed, leaving behind the concrete bed on which it had been laid to serve as a roadway for a NAT, a three-wheeled rubber-tied cross-country vehicle powered by a 400 cubic centimetre or 24 cubic inch four-stroke engine built by Amir's McLean of Galashells. This had a somewhat shorter working life than the railway, becoming redundant in its turn when the helipad was constructed. On the 28th of September 1971, the lighthouse was automated. A reinforced concrete helipad was constructed at the same time to enable maintenance visits in heavy weather. The light is produced by burning acetylene gas and has a range of 17 nautical miles, or 20 miles 32 kilometers. It is now monitored from the Butt of Lewis and the shore station has been converted into flats. Now we get into the mysterious 1900 crew disappearance. So, the first record that something was abnormal on the Flan Isles was on the 15th of December 1900, when the steamer Actor, on a passage from Philadelphia to Leith, noted in its log that the light was not operational in poor weather conditions. When the ship docked in Leith on the 18th of December 1900, the sighting was passed on to the Northern Lighthouse Board. The relief vessel, the lighthouse tender Hesperus, was unable to sail from Breslick Lewis, as planned on the 20th of December, due to adverse weather. It did not reach the island until noon on the 26th of December. The lighthouse was manned by three men, James Ducat, Thomas Marshall and Donald MacArthur, with a rotating fourth man spending time on shore. On arrival, the crew and a relief keeper found that the flagstaff had no flag, none of the usual provision boxes had left on the landing stage for restocking, and more ominously, none of the lighthouse keepers were there to welcome them ashore. Jim Harvey, the captain of Hesperus, attempted to reach them by blowing the ship's whistle and firing a flare, but was unsuccessful. A boat was launched and Joseph Moore, the relief keeper, was put ashore alone. He found the entrance gate to the compound and the main door both closed, the beds unmade and the clock unwound. Returning to the landing stage with this grim news, he then went back up to the lighthouse with Hesperus' second mate and a seaman. A further search revealed that the lamps had been cleaned and refilled. A set of oilskins was found, suggesting that one of the keepers had left the lighthouse without them. Now, this was not only unheard of, but was also illegal. One of the rules of the Norton Lighthouse Board stated that one man must always remain inside the lighthouse. There was no sign of the keepers, neither inside the lighthouse nor anywhere on the island. Moore and three volunteer seamen were left on the island to attend the light and Hesperus returned to Lewis. Captain Harvey sent a telegram to the Northern Lighthouse Board dated the 26th of December 1900 stating, and I quote, a dreadful accident has happened at the Flans. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional have disappeared from the island. The clocks were stopped and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane. End quote. 
On Ellen Moore, the men scoured every corner of the island for clues as to the fate of the keepers. They found that everything was intact at the east landing, but the west landing provided considerable evidence of damage caused by recent storms. A box at 33 meters or 108 feet above sea level had been broken and its contents strewn about. Island railings were bent over, the iron railway, the path was wrenched out of its concrete, and a rock weighing more than a ton had been displaced. On top of the cliff at more than 60 meters or 200 feet above sea level, turf had been ripped away as far as 10 meters or 33 feet from the cliff edge. Now we get into the Northern Lighthouse Board investigation. So, on the 29th of December 1900, Robert Muirhead at Northern Lighthouse Board Superintendent arrived to conduct the official investigation into the incident. Muirhead had originally recruited all three of the missing men and knew them personally. After reading the logs, Muirhead's attention turned to the remaining oil-skinned coat that had been left in the entrance hall. Why, in the bitter cold winter, had one of the lighthouse keepers ventured out without his coat? Furthermore, why had all three lighthouse staff left their posts at the same time when rules and regulations strictly prohibited it. He eventually concluded that Duke had a marshal had gone down to the western landing stage and that MacArthur, the occasional, had left the lighthouse during heavy rain in his shirt sleeves. He noted that whoever left light last and unattended was in breach of NLB rules. He also noted that some of the damage to the west landing was difficult to believe unless actually seen, end quote. Further clues were found down by the landing platform. Here, Muirhead noticed ropes strewn all over the rocks, ropes which were usually held in a brown crate 70 feet above the platform on a supply crane. Perhaps the crate had been dislodged and knocked down and the lighthouse keepers were attempting to retrieve them when an unexpected wave came and washed them out to sea. I mean, this was the first and most likely theory, and as such, Muirhead included it in his official report to the Northern Lighthouse Board. But his explanation left some people in the Northern Lighthouse Board unconvinced. I mean, for example, why had none of the bodies been washed ashore? Why had one of the men left the White House without taking his coat, especially since this was December in the Outer Hebrides, which was unheard of? Why had three experienced lighthouse keepers been taken unaware by a wave? Although these were all good questions, the most pertinent and persistent question was around the weather conditions at the time. The seas should have been calm. They were sure of this as a lighthouse could have been seen from the nearby Isle of Lewis, and any bad weather would have obstructed it from view. Muirhead stated, and I quote, From evidence which I was able to procure, I was satisfied that the men had been on duty till dinner time on Saturday the 15th of December, that they had gone down to secure a box in the mooring ropes, landing ropes, etc., which were kept when which was secured in a crevice in the rock about 110 feet, 34 metres above sea level, and that an extra large sea had rushed up the face of the rock, had gone above them, and come down with immense force, and swept them away completely. End quote. Whether this explanation brought any comfort to the families of the lost keepers, Duquette left a wife and four children, MacArthur a wife and two children, is unknown. This development did, however, tarnish the lighthouse's reputation for many years after the incident. Now we get to the speculation and conjecture. So, no bodies were ever found, but there have been some mysterious sites resulting in fascinated national speculation in newspapers and periodicals of the era. Implausible stories ensued, such as that a sea serpent had carried the men away, that they had arranged for a ship to take them away and start new lives, that they had been abducted by foreign spies, or that they had met their fate through the malevolent presence of a boat filled with ghosts. The baleful influence of the Phantom of the Seven Hunters was widely speculated locally. More than 10 years later, the events were still being commemorated and elaborated on. The 1912 ballad Flanagan by Wilfred Wilson Gibson refers to erroneously to an overturned chair and uneaten meal laid out on the table, indicating that the keepers had been suddenly disturbed. 
Quote, Yet as we crowded through the door, we only saw a table spread for dinner, meat, cheese, and bread, for all untouched and no one there, as though they sat down to eat, ere they could even taste. Alarm had come, and they in haste had risen and left the bread and meat, for all the table had a chair, lay tumbled on the floor. End quote. However, in the first-hand account made by Moore, the relief keeper, he stated that, and I quote, the kitchen utensils were all very clean, which is a sign that it must be after dinner sometime they left, end quote. Now we get into later theories and interpretations. So, theories more situated to the Middle Ages were soon doing the rounds, such as the men being gobbled up by a giant sea serpent or whisked away by a huge sea bird. One theory had the men leave the island by boat to escape debts, while another had them spirited away by the skeletal crew of a ghost ship. Some people even thought the men had been kidnapped by foreign spies, all which I mentioned before. Now, over time, the story has developed of the existence of an unusual logbook entries. They supposedly have Marshall saying on the 12th of December that there were severe winds the like of which I have never seen before in 20 years, end quote. He's also is said to have reported that Ducat had been very quiet and Donald MacArthur had been crying. MacArthur was a veteran marina with a reputation for brawling and thus it would be strange for him to be crying in response to a storm. Log entries on the 13th of December were said to have stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. This was also puzzling as all three men were experienced lighthouse keepers who knew they were in a secure structure 150 feet above sea level and should have known they were safe inside. Furthermore, there had been no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th and 14th of December. The final log entry is said to have been made on the 15th of December stating, and I quote, Storm ended, sea calm, God is over all, end quote. Now, an investigation by Mike Dash for the 14 Times revealed that the logbooks were fictional and were later additions to the story. So, dismissing both the fake logbook entries and the fanciful tales of sea serpents and ghost ships, what are we left with? Well, three theories have emerged over the years that seek to explain the men's disappearance. The first is based off the character of William MacArthur. Now, MacArthur was by all accounts an ill-tempered man who was quick to settle an argument with his fists. It has been speculated that he could have started the fight up on the western landing, which led to all three men falling to their deaths from the cliffs. The second theory is that one of the men, again, probably MacArthur, murdered the other two, ditched their bodies into the sea, and then threw himself off the cliffs. While both theories add a level of bloodthirsty juiciness to the mystery, there's no evidence that either a fight or murder took place. It is of cause perfectly possible for men in confined quarters to rub each other up the wrong way to the point where they snap and all hell breaks loose especially when one of them has a history of violence but without bodies or crime scenes to examine these two theories will forever remain mere supposition the more plausible explanation is that Marshall and Ducat were swept away while trying to secure the supplies and equipment on the West Landing. When his colleagues failed to return, MacArthur headed out to find them, and he too perished in the storm. Why anyone would head out on such a dangerous expedition when they could have stayed safe in the lighthouse can be explained by the fact that Marshall had previously been fined five shillings for losing his equipment in a previous gale. As a family man, losing five shillings in 1900s was no laughing matter, so it's no surprise if securing equipment was more important to Marshall than his own personal safety. Safety. Now, subsequent researchers have taken into account the geography of the islands. The coastline of Eileen Moor is deeply indented with narrow gullies called geos. The West Landing, which is situated in such a geo, terminates in a cave. In high seas or storms, water would rush into the cave and then explode out again with considerable force. It was possible MacArthur may have seen a series of large waves approaching the island and knowing the likely danger to his colleagues, ran down to warn them, only to be washed away as well into the violent swell. I mean, this theory also has the advantages of explaining the 
the set of all skins remaining indoors and MacArthur's coat remaining on its peg, although perhaps not to the closed door and gate. Another theory is based on the first-hand experiences of Walter Albright, a keeper on the Flans from 1953 to 1957. He believed one man may have been washed into the sea, but then his companions who were trying to rescue him were washed away by more freak waves. Of course, the real reason for the disappearance of James Ducat, Thomas Marshall, and William MacArthur will probably never be known. However, these three men met their fate on that cold December night back in 1900, be it by accident, misadventure, or design. The Flannels mystery remains one of the most baffling episodes in Scottish maritime history. With that, this case remains open, but with many unanswered questions that still remain unanswered. Please rate the show and let me know what you guys think about this and the many other cases I have covered. You can follow me on all social media platforms, YouTube, BitChute, Dailymotion. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram. Links are all down below in the description. If you have a case you'd like me to look at or cover, don't hesitate to send me a message. I'm your host, and this has been the Unanswered Questions Podcast. Until next time. Next on Unanswered Questions. In 1970, the Cruz and their 18-month-old daughter lived on their farm at Pukakawa, Lower Waikato. Jeanette was afraid to be in the house without her husband after bizarre burglary and arson attacks, including one in which clothes were set on fire in a bedroom. 